Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Reverend Steve Andrews. We continue our study in the book of Judges today with Judges chapter 3. Now, these are the nations that Yahweh left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines, and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of Yahweh which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. They forgot Yahweh their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, Yahweh raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of Yahweh was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and Yahweh gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim. So the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel the son of Kenaz died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and Yahweh strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon the king of Moab eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man, The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon the king of Moab, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord, dead on the floor. 
Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for Yahweh has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed it at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. So we begin getting into the actual men who serve as judges over the people of Israel. I mentioned in the first chapter that there was going to be a cycle, so I need to talk about that cycle again. The cycle is going to move from sin, so you're making a circle, sin at the top, draw an arrow down to the right, and there you're going to write down oppression, and then another arrow to the bottom, deliverer or judge, another arrow, this one going up to the left side, peace, and then another arrow that points back to sin. This is the cycle that we see on repeat throughout this entire book of Judges. The people of Israel sin against God. They rebel against him and they follow false gods. So the Lord allows them to be overcome. The Lord raises up oppressors who will bring about God's judgment upon them for their sin, to bring about repentance in the land. And eventually, the people will repent and they will call out to the Lord, and he hears that cry, he answers that cry, just as he did with Israel back in Egypt, remember, in the book of Exodus. And then, so he raises up a deliverer for them, a judge, as they're called, a military hero, a champion who brings victory in battle because the Lord is the one who's fighting for him. After that time, though, it brings about a time of peace. After that time of peace... The people fall back into their sinful and pagan ways and worship false gods again. And so this pattern is going to repeat throughout the book. We see the first three cycles today in chapter 3. So at the start, we learn that this is all to test Israel, right? It's the very first verse because the, the generations that are living now are not the generations that were alive when they conquered the promised land. These are not the ones who saw the way the Lord fought for his people. They have not seen those miracles. That generation remained faithful to the Lord, at least mostly, right? They're not perfect. They're still sinners, and we certainly see their sins. They failed to drive out all the people of the land, for example. But we read in chapter 2, verse 7, the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. But these new generations who did not see the war of the Canaanites, the war in the land of Canaan, which would be Israel now, the promised land, they didn't see that. They didn't see God work. And so God has left these foreign enemies in the land in order to test them, to see, verse 4, if they would follow his commandments. And that's not just the Ten Commandments, although the Ten Commandments are certainly part of it. For Israel, it's going to be what we call the moral, ceremonial, and civil laws. Everything basically from Exodus um, Exodus 12 and onward. 
through the end of the book of Deuteronomy. All of that is going to give so many different regulations. Some of them are the Ten Commandments, right? You see that in Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5 as well. That's a basic law from the Lord about how we should live our lives in love for him and love for our neighbor. That even remains today as Christ himself summarizes it down to those two things I just said, love God and love your neighbor. Civil law is how they are to behave as a people, as a nation, with God as their king. And in some ways, a lot of that civil law ends up going out the window as soon as they reject God as their king and they go with King Saul. But that doesn't happen in the book of Judges. That happens at the conclusion of the book of Judges when the final judge, Samson, dies. They appoint Saul to be king. Now, I I should actually say God appoints Saul to be king. The other thing, though, is the ceremonial law, and that gets into the religious practices around the temple and having the holiness of the Lord there present with them. At this point, it actually would still be the tabernacle. It'll be Israel's third king, Solomon, who will build that temple, that permanent structure, or at least meant to be permanent structure for the Lord. The tabernacle in Shiloh is the the house of the Lord at this point in time. But we see instead already they don't do well. So the people that they fail to drive out, not only do they fail to drive them out, they marry with them. This is a failure of one of those Old Testament laws, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. God very specifically said, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of Yahweh would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 and 4. Ask your children about this one, right? As you read verse 6, why is it bad that they married with these different peoples? This is not some kind of a law against interracial marriage. I understand that such a thing in Deuteronomy 7 was understood that way, uh, unfortunately, at some points in time. This is, yes, it's international, right, to marry into other nations, But the issue isn't the actual nation. The issue is there is no other nation under heaven at that time that trusts in Yahweh as their God. You can marry a a person from the other side of the world if they believe in Jesus Christ. That's the picture that's being given here. And they failed at that. So they welcome these, these wives into their homes who bring with them their pagan gods. Quite literally, by bringing idols into the home, as just a starting point, but then the worship of that idol becomes prominent among Israel and they stop following God. Honestly, I think we see that a lot in our own church now, as many Christians have married non-believers. It just wasn't a priority for a long stretch of time, and so we have seen the impact of that on families over the last couple generations. Then you get your first judge, which is going to be Caleb's younger brother, Othniel. We've seen him already in the book. He got to marry Caleb's daughter, Aksa. Othniel is going to be that first judge. So the people, are they've done evil in the sight of God. They have abandoned trusting in Yahweh. They're serving Baals and Asheroth. So they follow Baal and Asherah, these false gods and goddesses of the world. So God is angry with them, he raises up a foreign king to oppress them. 
Kushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is far out to the east, probably a lot of overlap with what we would think of with Assyria and Babylon in Israel's future, that kind of a, a region. And he's going to rule over them for eight years. You get this here, you're going to get it in the next section under Ehud as well. Something to bear in mind with all of this is God giving these governors, these worldly rulers, the authority over even his own people. This is Romans 13 language, that every governing authority comes from God. The Lord raises up these evil kings to declare his judgment against his own people because of their sin. They've rightly deserved it. And the Lord will then ultimately end up judging these wicked kings because they're wicked. They also have not repented. So he uses evil to bring about judgment, and then he also judges the evil in this picture. And that happens again and again. And honestly, it happens today. The Lord will work through one wicked government to topple another, and then he'll bring about another government to topple the first one. He does it again and again. Power of the sword given to the government, and the Lord works through that in this place, which honestly is probably better than the alternative, which would be, you know, God just wiping out everybody as we deserve to be wiped out because of our sin. But he is not because he has given us Christ who forgives us. This actual cycle, too, fits very well with Jesus. And you might have that as a family conversation as you look at the cycle of sin, oppression, deliverance, and peace. We sin. Our sin was great. And the consequence, the oppression there is death, right? That's the consequence, the punishment of our sin. And yet God sends us a deliverer in Jesus Christ who redeems us, rescues us, defeats our enemy, and gives us peace. That's a beautiful way to kind of see that connection here. Um, That is, in a sense, what the disciples in the New Testament are looking for from the Messiah. They want him to overthrow the oppressor that is Rome. And that's not what Jesus came to do. He overcame to he, he came to overthrow the oppressor of sin, death, and the devil. All right, so Kushan Rishathaim, eight years. That's probably 1378 to 1371 or so. Yahweh works through Othniel to defeat him in war. And then Israel has 40 years of peace, 1371 to 1332, we'll label it. Then you get the second judge, the second repeat of the cycle. And this is going to be a a judge by the name of Ehud. And this is a favorite story for many people, I think, especially probably boys and lefties, those who are left-handed, which means maybe especially left-handed boys. But you might want to act out this story, right? Um, Those of you who have children, young children that like to, you know, play, who would have the the toy sword available at home to to interact this with and let you know let them run it through under your your arm you know how to do that right where it just it goes under your arm and then you pinch your arm shut and pretend that you've been stabbed and you just fall over it, children might enjoy such a a thing so the lord gives this deliverance again because once again verse 12 the people of israel did evil in the sight of yahweh so he strengthened see that verb Eglon, king of Moab, because they had done what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. God very specifically judging Israel for their sin, 
even by means of a wicked king. So Eglon gathers the Ammonites. The people of Ammon, by the way, come from Lot. Remember Abraham's nephew Lot back in Genesis chapter 19 at the end of the chapter. Um, Ammon is one of Lot's children, I guess. Yeah, children and also grandchild. A really weird story there in Genesis 19. Anyway, um, Ammonites and the Amalekites, and they oppress Israel for 18 years. Eglon is the king, 1332 to 1315 or so is the range here. The city of Palms, by the way, is a reference to Jericho that even demolished, even though God had instructed very specifically in Joshua 626, it was to remain demolished and he was going to curse whoever tried to rebuild that city. It seems like the Israelites still tried to live there. Not good, right? Uh, Rejection of the Lord once again. So the people cry out, God gives them a deliverer, Ehud, who's a lefty. And here's the import, right? Here's what's important about this left-handedness. It is extremely rare at that point in history. Most everyone is right-handed. So for easy access to draw your sword, your sword would be on your left thigh. For Ehud, though, as a lefty, for that ease of access, his is on his right thigh. They didn't bother to check the right thigh because people weren't really left-handed. That was not where you would keep your sword for battle. So they checked the normal spot. The sword isn't there. They think he's safe. They think he's just another servant there to pay tribute, which, by the way, is basically taxes, an annual tax that has to be given to a foreign king that rules over you. So the people send this tax. They send this tribute. And Ehud tells Eglon that he has a message for him. A special message. And in fairness, this secret message of his is truly from God as he says that it is. This is God now judging the wicked king who did not repent of his own wickedness but continued right on being a wicked king. So Ehud has a sword that's a cubit in length, which is 18 inches roughly, and he draws that sword when he's with the king in private. He draws that sword and he stabs it into the king, into his gut. The king is so fat, right? That's actually told to us in the text, verse 17. Eglon was a very fat man. He's so fat that his his body actually just, uh, it absorbs the sword. It just goes into him, and the fat just falls over it. The sword is no longer visible. It has been swallowed up in this man's gut. Now, wealth in the ancient world ends up playing out the opposite of today. In our culture today, even the poorest among us tend to be fat and overweight, uh, and maybe more so because the, the best food that they can afford tends to be food that's really bad for the body. Whereas those who are wealthier, well, they spend all their money on, on dieting and, and all these um, other kinds of things, fitness and, and surgery and, and all these other things to try to stay in shape, to, stri- to try to stay what they think looks more appealing. In the ancient world, it was actually flipped around. If you were poor, you were thin. And if you were wealthy, you were fat because you could afford a lot of food. It's weird, probably, for people in this culture to think of it this way, but even the idea of what was attractive or sexy, to use a word, I don't think they used that word back then, but you know the picture today. It's the opposite still. A person who was overweight in the ancient world was attractive because it meant they could provide. Whereas today, it's, it's almost the opposite, where you, 
what is sold to us as attractive by our society is the almost a, a such a thinness that there is no food um, to some extent, it seems like. So just the maybe something to recognize about the history difference between this culture that we're looking at and the culture in which we live. Anyway, Ehud then sneaks out, right? He closes the door, locks the door, and he slips out another exit. The servants come, see that the door is locked, assume the king is using the bathroom, which is also a part of the story that little children might get a kick out of, and you as well if you have potty humor. They don't want to open the door in case their king's, you know, using the restroom. Eventually, a lot of time passes. They realize this isn't right. They open the door to find Eglon, their king, dead. Ehud again has escaped. He goes down to Seirah, which this is the only spot in all of scripture that that comes up. It's in the hill country of Ephraim. That's that's notable. We know where that is. That's fairly central in Israel. If you look at a map uh, in between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, and it's right there in the middle. So he summons, that's what the sound of the trumpet, he summons them for battle. Numbers chapter 10, that's one of the uses of the trumpet. Israel joins with him. He tells them that Yahweh has given the Moabites into their hand. They go to battle. They kill 10,000 Moabite soldiers, strong, able-bodied men. They're victorious. The land has rest for 80 years, roughly 1315 to 1236 B.C., Then we get the third cycle, the third repetition. Very little detail on this one. In fact, we only get the name of the man, Shamgar, that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad and thus saved all of Israel. An ox goad, for those of you who aren't familiar, is a tool that would be used to drive your ox as it worked the field. And so maybe like a a pole with a hook on the end of it, some kind of a farming implement. So, Shamgar, third judge. That's all we know. 